It's such an honor to be here. And seeing as how I'm, I'm used to preaching in a cafeteria, we'd better say a quick prayer. <laughs> so please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word that you have put before us in the Gospel of Luke, in this parable that you teach us. Lord, I pray you use this scripture to shape us and even to strengthen our resolve to serve you and to follow you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, um, other than parenting seven kids and serving at uh, St. Thomas's church, I'm kind of a bivocational guy, um, help run a family business. And other than that, I love wrestling with scripture. It's one of my favorite things to do. And the more I read and study and pray through it, the more exciting it becomes and the more ready I am to share what I'm learning with, with you and with others. But when I first read this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector, I think I made a very common mistake. On my first approach to this parable, I didn't get the full picture. At first, I thought it was a simple lesson about humility and repentance, we have this arrogant Pharisee who exalts himself, kind of judges others, and he thanks God that he's not like those sinners, and the humble tax collector who recognized his own sinfulness and he begged for mercy. And we receive this well, don't we? We love underdogs being vindicated. But I know that Jesus' parables are meant to be jarring and cut to our hearts. But this one seemed kind of bland. It landed flat at first. Until, of course, I realized that I was disgusted with the, pharable, with the, with the Pharisee. And I, I kept thinking, thank God I'm not like that sinner. Which made me realize that I'm worse than that Pharisee, right? And maybe that is the gut punch for some of us. But I, there's also more, much more. So most of us, when we learn to read as young readers, we're trained to read for information and answers. That's the prevailing goal. That a parable is meant to roll around in your head to dislodge dusty things, perhaps, even cause seismic shifts in your spiritual posture. It should cause us to deeply question our motives, even our allegiances. I believe a big part of a preacher's job is to help you to wrestle with the teachings of Scripture for yourself. So I want to ask you to stick with me for just a couple of minutes as I unpack some Bible reading strategies that will help us dive into this passage together. So rule number one for reading scripture, for me, if I don't think I fully understand something, what, what's happening in the passage, I don't just say, that's weird, I don't get it, and move on, but I might say, that's weird, I wonder why the author did that. Because I know there's a reason. For example, why did Luke lead into this parable with the question from Jesus about the Son of Man? That's in the verse right before our parable. We'll look at that in a second. Now the Gospels especially are literary works of art. They're meant to convince you of Jesus's identity, that Jesus is actually the long-awaited saving king. What they are, they're indirect arguments that force you to make a decision for yourself about who Jesus is and how you should respond. But it's done in a roundabout way. It's like, if I were to tell you stories about my amazing wife, now, I know she's amazing, but rather than just tell you directly and explicitly, hey, my wife is amazing, you have to believe me, I could just tell you the story of our marriage, and you'd become convinced that, yes, indeed, she is amazing. 
So Luke doesn't just come out and make claims. He tells stories. And all the stories in the gospel are intentionally arranged for the, by the authors for a reason. Not just the content, but the form and the order of them are creatively inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here in particular, in a parable of Jesus, my first reading is risking reducing Jesus' magnificent teaching on his kingdom into a lesson on Christian virtue, that we should be humble. So in order for you to understand my process of avoiding crashing and burning on this passage and to understand how we're going to be confident in landing on what Jesus is saying here, I need to tell you a quick story about how I was almost killed in a small amphibious airplane on Lake Moultrie. Now, what is a guy with seven kids doing flying a small amphibious plane? This was a number of kids ago, and I don't fly anymore. But I used to fly this little open cockpit airplane. It was yellow, bright yellow, high wing, uh, engine on the back. And it's just you in a bucket seat with a seat belt and a stick in front of you. And it was so fun. You could land on water or land. Now, one day, I flew from Mount Pleasant up to Lake Moultrie. That's about 50 miles inland. I had my cousin in the back seat. He's my best friend. And we followed the Cooper River winding up to Lake Moultrie. And when we got up there, I looked at where I wanted to land, and I went for it, just straight into final. Okay? Now, as a seaplane pilot, one of the most important things that I should be doing is reading the water. You need to do that well as a seaplane pilot. Reading the water takes experience. You're reading the water to tell you what the wind and the waves are doing. Now, open water behaves differently at different wind speeds, so you can learn a lot about your landing zone if you read it properly. Or you can do what I did that day and just go straight in for the landing. And thank God I'm still alive, and I made it. One look from one angle doesn't cut it, and praise God that I'm alive to tell you that now. Lake Moultrie is a very big and shallow lake, and when the wind is steady enough for long enough, it can create these big, slow, rolling waves that are kind of spread apart, hard to see at one angle. They're very sneaky. But had I done the proper preparation and made a 360 around, I would have seen them with the sun at a different angle. Alas, I didn't see them until I was about five feet above the surface of the water. At that time, it was too late. I was already stalled, flared out, ready to land. So I did my best to land between the waves, and I stuck the landing. Praise God. Now, I don't want you to put yourselves in this same situation with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or any parable for that matter. Don't ever assume you know the water. You may land and be stuck there for a while with an incomplete understanding of the passage. The more familiar parables are the riskier ones. That's why this one got me. I was pretty familiar with it. We assume we know them in full. But if we take time to circle around them, we'll usually find that our landing zone is much more majestic and unsettling than we first thought. And here's what I mean by that. Parables are not isolated teachings, but they're usually in the context of other parables and other conversations. Your Bibles have subject headings over different sets of paragraphs, subtitles in bold over different topics that Jesus teaches on. These headings are a new invention. They're fine for reference, but they're horrible for reading a narrative. Imagine you're watching your favorite TV show, and in about every 30 seconds, the narrator comes on just to tell you what's about to happen in the interaction. That would be super annoying, right? That's what happens sometimes in Scripture, and especially here in Luke 18. Luke 18. 
You lose the pace, the drama, all the momentum and the force that the author's going for. One of my favorite Bible readers has said that reading the Bible is like riding a bike. If you go too slowly, you'll fall off. So what do we see? What do we see when we do a 360 degree fly around our passage, ignoring the interruption of the headings? How does it change our approach? Well, here's what we see. We see more than just a lesson in humility and repentance, we see our Lord Jesus present us with the only way and a very costly way, the only way into his kingdom. He challenges us to a lifestyle of complete allegiance at all costs. And I'm going to prove it to you. Complete allegiance at all costs. That's what we see in the tax collector. So bear with me as we fly around at 5,000 feet for the view of our whole landing zone. And I encourage you to open your Bible, your Pew Bible or a Bible app if you have one to Luke 18. That might be helpful as we run through these. And we're going to fly over the verse right before our parable. That sets us up. And then the two interactions that follow our parable, those include Jesus and the little children and the rich ruler. It's all in the same scene, same place, same people, same teaching of Jesus, each interaction reinforcing the others. All connected by the same theme, which is complete allegiance at all costs. So as you open your Bibles in Luke 18, you'll see that Jesus asks a question in the verse right before our parable. And this question unlocks the purpose of this parable and the string of teaching to follow. He says in verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? As we fly over our landing zone, we need to unpack and employ this question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? Now, it's not just a random way for Jesus to end the parable that he just told, though it may seem like it. It's actually a bridge to introduce what comes next. It points to the ultimate issue that Jesus wants to bring to everyone's attention in the rest of the scene. Will the Son of Man find faith when he comes? So first we need to know who the Son of Man is and what kind of faith he's looking for. Well, if the Son of Man there were uh, lit up in blue as a hyperlink and you clicked on it, you might hear something like this of a background. The Son of Man is a conquering king from a prophetic vision in the book of Daniel. He's a royal figure. He's prophesied to be a saving, powerful, conquering king, more powerful than any of the kings of the earth. And when he comes, he will reign forever. And the faithful children of Israel will receive his kingdom. So many in Israel were hoping for this day to free them from the pagan rule of Rome. So Jesus is asking, when this king shows up, will there even be a faithful Israelite to inherit his kingdom? That's what he means when he asks if the Son of Man will find faith. So it's apparent he's not looking for a faith that one might define as believing without seeing, say. Israel is hoping and looking for the Son of Man. The word faith can throw us off here because there's such a wide range of use. We use it a lot. We usually equate it with some kind of trust or belief, and it can mean those things. But the Greek word is pistis. Now, pistis has a range of meaning. It can be translated as faith. Trust, loyalty, faithfulness. Scholars have argued that when pistis is used in the context of royalty, of showing pistis or faith to a king, the best way to translate it is allegiance. 
you know, like pledging allegiance to your country. It's a lasting loyalty, a committed faithfulness. And because allegiance conveys the idea of faithfulness to a higher power lived out, I've found this very helpful in smoothing out some passages like this one. Because faith can be a vague idea, but committing your faith to a king is a much more precise matter. It's a particular kind of faith, and we will call it allegiance. With that said, let's apply Jesus' question to the scenes that follow. When the Son of Man comes, will he find allegiance? Will the king find any faithful subjects upon his arrival? So let's continue our fly around. With the Pharisee and the tax collector, who is showing allegiance? What does allegiance to God look like here? It's clear that the tax collector is the role model for us. Even though it seems the Pharisee is the one who's doing everything, right? He has everything together. The tax collector is the one who goes down to his house justified. When all he does is admit that he's a sinner and he begs God for mercy. He doesn't offer a sacrifice. He doesn't make any deals with God. But he stood at a distance and beat his breast in anguish over his own sinfulness. And we should see this as a very mournful act. Not only were tax collectors colluding with the Roman occupiers, but they were also known to be dishonest cheats. So as he walked into the temple to pray, you can imagine he'd have been stared down by the religious elite. It's no wonder he stood far off when he begged God for mercy. And given the intensity of the scene, I'm going to suggest that this is a picture of life-altering repentance. I'm going to suggest that this is a picture of not just a meager, I'm sorry, God, type of apology, but I think we're supposed to see a sinner making a drastic turn toward faithfulness, toward obedience to his God, allegiance to his God. Because what do we see? We see a man willing to give up his livelihood, perhaps even willing to face legal consequences for abandoning his post, but he knows he has to make a choice about where his allegiance will go, to Rome or to Yahweh, his God. And according to Jesus, he made the right choice. And he goes down to his house justified. So as we keep flying around the scene, when Jesus finishes that parable, the next thing we see is people begin to bring little children to Jesus. Now, where do we see allegiance here? Who is being faithful? It may seem like an odd question, and the answer might remain hidden if you aren't visualizing the scene. Now, it's only three verses, and I'll read them. And when I read them, I want you to picture the scene in your mind, okay? Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. So Jesus is the one doing the receiving. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So culturally, it made sense that the disciples would rebuke Jesus. Receiving the children was a very odd thing to do, especially infants. They were the lowest rung of society. Abandoning infants was a normal practice. They had a very low life expectancy, high mortality rate, burdensome to care for. Jesus' words and actions teach us two things here. The first is that the kingdom of God belongs to the low and powerless ones, to those who don't have power or social status, or perhaps those who give up their power like the tax collector. He's reinforcing the idea in our parable of the lowly and humble being exalted. The second thing Jesus teaches us here 
is what can slip by you if you aren't imagining the scene as you read it. Now picture the scene. Jesus is the one receiving the children as he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now what's happening grammatically there is an ellipsis if there are any grammar nerds. But he's not saying we need to be like children. He's saying we need to be like him in how he receives children. We ought to be willing to be rebuked by our closest friends for being out of step with cultural norms that might oppose God's kingdom. He's saying, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like I am receiving children shall not enter it. Jesus is animating his teaching here. It's a live action parable. He's saying we should be willing to step out of social norms, be willing to be rebuked by society, rebuked by our friends even in public, be willing to sacrifice our reputation to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that allegiance to a king is not always easy, but it's costly. So quick recap. We have the tax collector showing allegiance by turning away from his livelihood and past wrongdoings. And we have Jesus showing allegiance by risking his reputation and being rebuked as he receives children. As we continue our fly around the landing zone, the third picture of allegiance is a rich ruler. So in response to the teaching about receiving little children, a rich ruler pipes up and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus names some commandments, if you see there in your Bible. And the ruler replies, I've kept those commandments since I was a kid. Then Jesus adds, there's one thing you still lack. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. This is a heavy passage, and we're not going to be able to touch on everything. We're going to stay at 5,000 feet. But what's the one thing the ruler lacks? Jesus says he lacks one thing, then he tells him to do three things. Sell, give, follow me. Which one is it? Does he lack generosity? Does he lack care for the poor and powerless? Or is it simply that he's not following Jesus yet? Rather, these three things expose the one thing that he does lack. He lacks authentic allegiance to Yahweh, his God. He keeps commandments, but Jesus knows his allegiance is to his wealth first and foremost, and Jesus exposes it very brilliantly. Luke tells us the rich ruler became very sad because he was extremely wealthy. And Jesus goes on to talk about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this is a very real struggle for any of us in the first world, isn't it? Full allegiance to God was what the rich ruler lacked. So when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? Will he find allegiance to the true king on earth? We see now that we have a whole cast of characters to hold up against this question. We have the rich ruler attached to his wealth. We have powerless babies. We have disciples rebuking Jesus. We have Jesus himself receiving children. We have an arrogant and judgmental Pharisee. And we have a humble tax collector. So as you've heard this larger scene and let it roll around in your head, has anything been exposed in your own life? If you put yourself in this cast of characters, who do you sympathize with? It may vary by the day or by the situation. I know from experience that we regularly find ourselves gripping tightly to our possessions, like the rich ruler, rebuking our teachers, rebuking those with authority over us, like the disciples, or exalting ourselves, like the Pharisee. 
one of the realities that we're supposed to see is that our allegiance is not perfect. We should see that this entire scene is a bit jarring and exposing of our own allegiance to our Lord. So will the Son of Man find faith when he comes? That's the question. Now before we respond with sadness like the rich ruler, we can take heart. The entire scene we just flew over has a surprising resolution. If you go to verse 31, right when he's done talking to the rich ruler, Jesus turns to his 12 closest disciples and he adds the son of man himself to the cast of characters. And he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Our question was, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? According to this, when the Son of Man comes, he himself will be the faithful one. His allegiance will be perfect and costly, costing him all his possessions, the clothes off his back, his social status, shamed, rebuked, mocked, costing his very life. Complete allegiance at all cost. His allegiance here is shocking and it's supposed to shock us. Now, the disciples don't understand it at this point, but if you were to keep reading Luke, you'd come in just a few minutes to a crucifixion scene that's set up with a coronation motif, triggering thoughts of a king taking his throne. And Jesus is mocked with splendid clothing and a sign above him that says, King of the Jews. And as the king is on his cro cross and he breathes his last breath, a familiar-looking scene unfolds. In this death scene that I'm about to read from Luke 23, there are some who are mournfully beating their breasts and returning home. There are some who are standing at a distance, and there's one man who's declared justified. Now listen and picture it in your mind. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Justified. It's the same word in Greek. Certainly this man was justified. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. It's all the same movements, same phrases from our parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Why does Luke do this? He does this because when we read this, we're faced with a decision to make. How do we respond to this man? When we get to this point, how do we respond? After all we've seen him say and do, Luke presents Jesus as the only righteous one, the Christ, the King of all kings, the Son of Man, keeping perfect allegiance at all costs. And in this scene, Luke wants our imagination to go back to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector because that's what informs our response. When we see the perfect allegiance to the Son of Man, we're suddenly free to join the tax collector in praying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a life-altering prayer. It's an allegiance-altering prayer. And only because of the shocking faithfulness of God are we able to pray that prayer and go down to our house justified. Amen.